Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Jim. Good to be back again. We have two main things to talk about today. I think one is dominating the conversation, which of course is COVID and the new variant and what that means for all of us. And what I want to do at least is talk about how this non-scientist lay person interprets the, the data, what's coming out of South Africa and the UK and other disparate places such as Denmark and Norway, and what that might mean in terms of government response, both in terms of how that's going to impact on our lives, particularly over the Christmas period, and of course, how it's going to impact on the economy. And you and I can certainly talk about all or some of that together. The other constant in our economists' lives, of course, is inflation. And the story there around the world, particularly in the United States, just keeps getting worse. Today, we've had the worst producer price inflation numbers since they first started coming out. Uh, That's not quite as bad as it sounds, because the way in which these numbers were put together changed um, about a decade ago, in in the case of uh, one of the numbers anyway. And so although it's, it's a longish run of data, we're not talking about going back into the last century of data. But on the face of it, they do look bad, both in terms of the headline number and when we strip out the more volatile components of food and energy, uh, they still look bad. And that comes on a day when the Federal Reserve is meeting to decide on probably accelerating what's called the taper. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but also to indicate just how much more than expected or more than it last said, it's going to be raising interest rates next year and the year after. What I think we can expect from the Fed, the headlines over the next day or two will be that their money printing or expressed properly purchases of bonds uh, is going to slow down a lot more than they previously planned. 
and their projections, each individual member of the Federal Markets, Federal Reserve's Open Markets Committee will be indicating an accelerated pace of interest rate rises next year. That spooked the equity market today. Uh, who knows whether it will last, but certainly the S&P has sold off reasonably heavily. Nothing too extreme uh, as I speak, but nevertheless, it's it's not good for markets. Um, the inflation story, of course, we've talked about an awful lot. And one of the, the aspect, many aspects of it has been the way it interacts with COVID. The two things are not unrelated. To a non-economist, that might seem a little strange. But Jim, you know the way in which COVID has worsened the initial supply shortages. And if we're going to get another wave of COVID, presumably a lot of those supply shortages are going to come back. What do you think? Yeah, I I think so, Chris. Um, We've been living through the legacy of what we've seen over the last 24 months, almost at this stage with COVID and the supply disruptions. And we hear stories out of um, some of the major ports in China about the possibility or the actuality of uh, COVID-related lockdown as Omicron starts to um, take hold there. So clearly, if the major ports in China um, are being seriously restricted in terms of their activities, that is just going to exacerbate all of the supply chain difficulties around the world because obviously China is a major part of the global supply chain system at the moment. And a lot of the stuff we consume around the world emanates directly or indirectly from China. Uh, We see today that EU natural natural gas prices have reached a record high, um, and that's due to a combination of very cold weather snap and also supply disruptions. We have the ongoing uncertainty over the Russians massing forces on the Ukrainian border, and um, that's creating a lot of nervousness. So economics and covid are totally and utterly interrelated at the moment. And um, there's going to be a lot of conflicting forces at play over the next few months. Uh, We have to wait and see what sorts of restrictions various governments will implement over the coming weeks. And indeed, Neffet is briefing the Irish government tonight. So God only knows what's going to come out of that. But one suspects there will be recommendations on further restrictions. And I think it's going to be a similar story Um, in most parts of the world to varying degrees. So that's going to um, seriously disrupt um, the supply of everything. And um, it's pretty much, unfortunately, uh, we're back in a very similar position to where we were at this time last year. Um, I remember looking ahead to 2022 and saying, or 2021, excuse me, and saying that uh, at least the early months of 21 will be dominated by COVID-related uncertainty And um, unfortunately, as we move into 2022, uh, one can only say the same thing. So that's at one level, you know, the impact that's going to have on the supply side of the equation. And of course, on on the other side of the equation, you know, the impact that has on inflation and the impact it has on economic activity. And for central bankers, and we've discussed this many times, uh, there's a huge dilemma at the moment because this Omicron Um, surge is going to dampen economic growth. Um, It is going to exacerbate um, some inflationary pressures. And um, so so how do central central bankers react to that? And from the Federal Reserve tomorrow evening, I suppose we're going to get the first indication of that um, at the conclusion of the FOMC meeting. 
So really, really uncertain times for central bankers at the moment. Um, yeah, the rest exemplified of by the IMF today has issued a warning to the UK saying don't delay rate rises, interest rate rises. And that's exactly what the Bank of England is now expected to do. They're flip-flopping all over the place. On the last podcast, I think I said that it looks like um, almost certain that the Bank of England will raise rates in December. The consensus amongst forecasters has changed dramatically since then, uh, partly because of the new variant visibly slowing the UK economy down and creating all of the uncertainties that you just suggested. On the one hand, you've got the pipeline pressures, the supply line pressures, which will push inflation up, but you've got economic activity being lower than it otherwise would have been, perhaps even contracting, pushing inflation down. So who'd be a central banker these days when you've got the IMF on your case and all of the data, depending which way you look at it, pushing you in both opposing directions. But the consensus is now that they won't raise rates this month, that they will uh, not listen to the IMF. But who knows? We, we will wait to see, just as we are waiting to see with the Federal Reserve. Eventually, the ECB is going to have to join this party. And will they or won't they raise interest rates? They may well be the last central bank to do so. But it, it must be coming, Jim. Um, our mortgage rates in Ireland, I think, will go up next year at some point if this continues in the way that it is, because there is just too much inflation out there. But let's look at what's causing all of this uh, anxiety about interest rates, about inflation, about economic growth, our health and our ability to enjoy Christmas. So we've called it COVID corner in the past. I suspect that it's going to be much more than a corner. It's going to be dominating the discussion of the rest of this podcast. And I think quite a few podcasts and other media for some time to come. It's been striking to me when I've talked to people around the place here about how much confusion there is about what the messages from government are, what the messages from the science are, what, what is the data saying. And the questions that people have start with what's going on in South Africa, where there is some tentative, and I stress tentative evidence, that people are not getting quite as sick with this new variant as they were with Delta and the other variants. Scientists, the ones that I've read at least, say they don't know whether that's the disease itself becoming less virulent, less causing of harm, health harm, or whether it's people uh, have uh, more immunity, but either via prior infection and or vaccination. The, the scientists' best guess as I read it at the moment, it's more likely to be the latter, that this disease hasn't mutated to become milder. It's the fact that it's no longer a novel coronavirus. It's no longer new to humanity, even in places like South Africa, where vaccination rates are quite low. Infection, prior infection rates were quite high. And there are lots of medics and scientists in South Africa saying it looks like it's causing less hospitalization, less death, even when people are going into hospital they're not requiring so much intervention via oxygen and um, intubation. Uh, but that's tentative. There have been some papers published suggestive of that as well, but nothing that I've seen that has been peer-reviewed or definitive. So uh, we, you know, that's the wait-and-see-for-data thing that most of the scientists and medics quite rightly are saying at the moment. But everybody's pinning their hopes on it, causing less hospitalization. So the focus of attention is switching away from cases towards hospitalizations. That's understandable. 
because that that's really where the rubber hits the road when we in the UK worry about the NHS falling over. And I know you in Ireland worry about the hospital system there as well. So it's mildly encouraging that certainly up to today, there hasn't been a sharp rise in hospitalizations or deaths in the UK. Hospitalizations are up a little bit over the course of the last week, but not a lot. Um, and that seems to be mostly focused on London and the southeast, actually, because one of the scary aspects of the data is that in London, it's quite possible that Omicron either today or tomorrow will become the dominant variant. And if you look at the charts of London cases, they've just gone vertical. It, it's it's not exponential. It's asymptotic, I think, to, to use some mathematical expressions. It really is extraordinary what's going on in London. And the rest of the UK is reckoned to be about two weeks, one week to two weeks behind London. So there's certainly a case issue in London going on at the moment. It's scary when you look at the data there. The the case numbers are being inflated a little bit by the fact that um, there's much more testing going on in the UK. In fact, uh, there's problems now with testing capacity with lots of reports today of testing centres running out of PCR tests. Lateral flow tests or antigen tests, I think you call them in Ireland, have suddenly become in short supply. Uh, lots of stories about that. Um, but the, over the last week, the number of deaths has fallen in the UK. The seven-day death rate has fallen by 6.5%. Um, but the daily numbers today were 59,000 in the UK. That's, that's a lot, Jim. That's the highest. It's, it's surpassed its July peak by quite a long way now. And the case numbers are up. 12% the last seven days over the previous seven days. So the numbers are a mixed bag. Then the hospitalizations and deaths are not taking off. But I guess the pessimists would say not yet, because the fundamental problem is that even if uh, this horrible variant, it does cause less hospitalizations, deaths, serious illness, um, that is raises the question about a, a particular number that the modelers use, which is the hospitalization rate. So what you do is that you say, okay, we've got this number of COVID infections, what proportion of them end up in hospital? In the UK, um, for Delta, uh, one estimate that I saw is that it was 1.6%. And even if it halved to 0.8%, the number of cases that you're multiplying that little number, 0.8% by, still produces a scary number of hospitalizations. And, and that's that's the thing. And I mentioned just now that 59,000 people tested positive, um, were reported tested positive today over the last few days. And the uh, mod, that's the actual number of PCR and lateral flow tests that have been reported to the authorities. Modeling what the epidemiologists and other scientists do to try and gauge just how many people really have got been infected over the last while because not everybody gets tested because they either get it so mild they don't bother they think they've got a cold or they indeed they get it asymptomatically that still does happen but the uh, medical authorities here in the UK are saying that the, the run rate of disease of cases is, is not 59,000 a day it's 200,000 and the Omicron is doubling doubling every two days now, that's, that's scary. Interestingly, when it comes to what that means for restrictions, there's a couple of things going on in the UK. First of all, today, 
they've lifted all the red list foreign travel countries. So if you want to come in from South Africa or any of those other Southern African countries that they put on the red list, I think there were 11 countries in total, they're saying, sod it, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. This thing is here. Having these travel restrictions won't make a difference. Um, some people might be surprised by that. I think it's quite sensible because it, it certainly is logical. Um, and that raises the question about what other restrictions could work if travel restrictions don't. And my instincts are to say that th at this point in the evolution of the pandemic, for all sorts of reasons, because of the nature of the variant, because of my estimation of human behavior and the conversations I've been having with people about their willingness to now obey any further restrictions that come in, my assessment is that short of a full legally mandated lockdown, nothing's going to work. I don't, th I don't think restrictions would work. And I'm not even sure about what a full legally mandated um, uh, lockdown would mean, because that the second thing that's worth mentioning here is that the ruling party, the Tory party, there now appears to be a majority of MPs in the government party that are now opposed to any new restrictions, let alone a lockdown. And that if Johnson were to propose a full lockdown, the only thing that I think could actually make a significant difference to whatever is going to happen next, um, there would be a full-scale mutiny. So uh, restrictions here in the UK certainly are very medical, very scientific, but they're very, very political. And I think something similar, uh, perhaps not to the same extent, but something similar is probably happening in Ireland, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, I noticed in the UK yesterday there was a half million booster jabs given out and today they've announced that the 15 minute observation period after you get your jab um, is being abolished so in other words you get your jab and leave which speeds up the whole process so that's indicative of just how seriously they're taken at the moment I also observed this morning that Dominic Rabb on Sky News was asked about how many people with Omicron were in hospital he said 250 an hour later on BBC, he said nine and the actuality was 10. So if that's indicative of the the level and stature of political leadership in the UK, um, it's no it, wonder. Jim, Jim yeah. it, is, it is indicative and it's indicative of the debate generally. One of the reasons why I try to go through a little bit the numbers, the data, what the science is saying and the political dimension of it is that the people are very confused as a result of what they're being told by the politicians. And I know there are similar stories to be told in Ireland. But here in the UK, we're, we're very badly led. The, Johnson gave a news conference to announce stuff that we all knew on Sunday night, just to keep a particular story, another one about Christmas parties off the headlines, out of the headlines on Monday morning. I mean, it's quite shocking, the attempts to, to manage the news flow via COVID, playing games really with people's health. But we know that that's what these people are like. But it's very important to realise that um, even well-intentioned media uh, can sometimes lead us astray and add to this confusion. Hence, what we're trying to do here is clear some of it up. There was a fascinating interview between a professor of medicine at Oxford University, the Regis Professor of Medicine at Oxford University this morning, and the flagship BBC radio programme, their equivalent of Morning Ireland, in which the results of the lab tests that have been done at the government laboratories called Portland Down on the Pfizer vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine in terms of assessing just how good they are at producing antibodies against the new variant. Uh, these results have been out over the course of the last week and have scared a lot of people because it's, these studies, these um, 
laboratory studies showed that the, the vaccines are not great at producing lots of antibodies against the new variant, in which case the interviewer was rehearsing this argument with this Regis professor, went on to say, so therefore these vaccines are not terribly effective, are they? Which is the conclusion I think that a lot of people would leap to and a lot of journalists have leapt to when they saw the results of these studies. And this Regis professor of medicine said, no, 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 that is just not true because a number of things happen here. If antibodies stayed in our body every time we got a virus, our bodies would become over time absolutely overfull, stuffed with antibodies. So they decline naturally after every infection, after every vaccination. So this, this always happens and that there are secondary levels of defense uh, called T-cells, restraining into an area about which I am not qualified to speak. But my understanding of it is that the T-cells don't stop you from being infected, but will produce a secondary defense that mean that you don't get very sick. And after the interviewer had asked him about the antibodies and saying that they were ineffective, this no, no, no answer that he gave explained the role of the T-cell and the way in which even after two doses, not just after three, after two doses, there should still be a high degree of protection. And there has been another study produced today saying that two doses of Pfizer still produces 70% efficacy against severe disease. So who knows? There, there, there seems to be new data every day. That's my interpretation of it. It's that there is no need for quite so much pessimism about two doses. It's a reason why there might be considerable optimism about the effect of three doses. But I go back to what I was saying earlier on. Unless you're getting well into the 90s, you're still going to get very small numbers multiplied by very big numbers when it comes to problems. And even if things are quite good when it comes to all of these different things, as we pull them all together, there could still be a problem. And my particularly bleak conclusion, as I hinted at or perhaps stated explicitly earlier on, is that for all sorts of reasons, I think anything short of a full lockdown is not going to actually mitigate against this and that the health services in both our countries are going to come under severe pressure unless we get very, very lucky. Um, that leads me on to another point, which I'll perhaps park for the moment. And perhaps you could just talk me through how you think people in Ireland are feeling about all of this, the prospect of Christmas again being cancelled. Yes, Chris, that there is a sense of deja vu here at the moment. Last year, the government introduced restrictions from mid-afternoon on Christmas Eve in the hospitality sector. And um, Neffet is meeting the government tonight, as I said, to advise on strategy. And I, I suspect, I could be wrong, but I suspect the message it will be given them is very similar to your diagnosis for the United Kingdom, where um, you know the rate of hospitalization is likely to increase significantly over the coming weeks if numbers continue to grow um, in Ireland or start to grow in Ireland as they are in the UK at the moment. How will the people of Ireland respond to that? Well, I see two things out there. I see um, a significant withdrawal from social activity of a lot of people. Um, people are cancelling stuff. They're, a lot of people are not going to restaurants. They're not going to pubs. They're not engaged in social gathering. So voluntarily, people are nervous. They're scared. And they are, as I say, withdrawn to some extent. And then, you know, so and these are the people when further restrictions are, uh, if they're announced, they will take those and get on with it as they did last year. Uh, there is another segment of the population 
um, that will react extremely neg- negatively to um, the announcement of further restrictions. Um, so I, I guess you could say that uh, there's there's no clear answer to this. It's, it's different people will react in very different ways. But I do think that it comes as a huge hammer blow to people's psychology at this stage because um, our, our, our expectations have been developed in a way over the last 12 months that as the vaccine program is rolled out, uh, there will be a return to normality. And um, we never got a full return to normality in this country because despite the fact the vaccine program was being rolled out, we were still seeing relatively high levels of infection, although low levels of death and hospitalization. Uh, that's now start to change. And uh, people are really, really, um, I think, in the depths of despair in many cases about the possibility of months more of restrictions. And uh, there's, there's two ways of looking at this. One is, should did, did, did our politicians and our political system and indeed NEPHIT overpromise um, or, or was it psychologically important to try and hold out some hope? Uh, but there is a sense now that they overpromised and that what was promised is not being delivered. And um, we're in for another period of dark yeah. months or dark weeks, the, the whatever. That I uh, have so... some sympathy for policymakers, not a lot, because I do think that they've made some very obvious missteps on both islands. But the one thing that strikes me now, you know, I'm sitting here as a older guy. Uh, I've had COVID. I've had three jabs and I couldn't be more protected. I, it certainly isn't 100% protection um, by no means, but uh, I've done all that I can and science has done all that it can for me. But let me put this to you, Jim. The way in which the National Health Service in the UK now is is prioritising COVID above all other diseases, if I, God forbid, was to get cancer or heart disease now, I wouldn't be treated. Now, there is a good chance, I mustn't be too extreme about this, there's a good chance that I wouldn't be diagnosed because unless I went private, I'd be in such a long queue for a check, for a scan, for, for whatever. I, I wonder, and I only ask the question personally, is there more chance now over the next while of me dying of heart disease or cancer than of COVID, given who I am? And it, it's the prioritization now of COVID over all other diseases is an interesting choice that maybe they've not made it explicitly, but it certainly seems to have been made here in the UK, that if you've got anything other than COVID, get in line. And when we get around to you, we'll get around to you. But that may be many, many months into the future. It's exactly the same here, Chris. Um, We've seen cancer rates drop significantly um, in the second half of 2020 and so far in 2021. And there's no way possible that the rate of cancer has declined here. So it's it's the fact that people are not being detected uh, because priority is being given to COVID and that at the end of all of this, a lot of people will present, unfortunately, with much more advanced cancer that will be much more difficult to treat. So we we I spoke to you early in our podcast careers uh, back in, I think, March 2021 um, about looking at the whole cost-benefit analysis of the approach to controlling COVID and uh, while keeping hospitalization rates and infection rates down on the COVID front uh, is one metric of success. Um, I think there was never 
any real consideration given to the other cost in the health service. Um, it's and it's it's indicative, I guess, of a health service that has been capacity hospital capacity is up at ninety five ninety six percent. So, if you were to push my logic through and say, okay, we'll stop prioritizing COVID, give some priority back to other killer diseases, um, that effectively means turning some COVID patients away, I guess, which is just a choice that people would not be willing to make. What it adds up to, to me, is an impossible situation facing the authorities, which is that if you think about it in the round, that, you know, the health service is treating COVID as best as it possibly can, but not treating other life-threatening diseases. This worry that people have had about health systems falling over has actually come to pass, if you put it in that way, in that if, if cancer and heart disease is not being treated effectively or as it should and could be, then the health service has fallen over. So this thing that we dread, this thing that we are threatened with, that we must, in the UK, we hear all the time, we must do this, we must do that in order to protect the NHS. Well, protect it from what now? Because it seems to me that it's already fallen over and that the catastrophe is here, that people are going to be dying of these other diseases as well as COVID because of the way in which we're doing things. I'm not sure that there is a better way. I'm not sitting here pretending that there is some utopian optimization of of health resources that will treat some covid some heart disease some cancers in an optimally better balanced way that might be an impossible calculus but i do think the time has come to perhaps face up to reality rather than basing our 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 policy on on, well i don't know what our policy is based on anymore actually jim so I i i feel quite bleak about it actually i think that we really are trusting a to luck that that these little numbers that I spoke to you about earlier on are small enough that we get away with it and that by March, April time, the new vaccines will come to pass um, and that we will have a vaccine against Omicron. But, you know, do we are we then going to need vaccines against Pi and Theta and Sigma and all the others that seem to lie in our future as well? So I think that it's quite possible that we get worked up into a, quite a pessimistic state here. Um, and I'm trying hard not to. Yeah, Chris, I've heard enough, actually. Um, and I suspect our listeners have as well. What do you think all of this means for the global economy? Well, as we it's not good, is it, Jim? Um, one of the interesting things is that uh, the, the South African economy has not been hurt at all by Omicron. Uh, South Africa's economic activity has continued apace and there doesn't seem to have been yet an economic impact from it, which is really interesting. And all of the forecasters for all of the the other economies that we're more familiar with think that whatever Omicron throws at us, um, it's not going to be nearly as bad as, as before. And I can only say I hope those forecasts are right. Imagine the scenario where we get away with it and that the hospital system doesn't completely fall over because of this new variant. It's put under a lot of strain, and we come to the end of January, and it looks like, partly because the thing is so blooming infectious, that the, the, the peak has arrived quite early and, and the cases are falling again, you know, that even uh, the anti-vaxxers have finally got some immunity via, via infection and all, all those other slightly bizarre positive side effects. And then, then a new variant comes along. I mean, what do we do then? Is, is, is our future that we are destined to be talking like this this time next year? I mean, God forbid, I certainly hope not. But um, 
I'm having my tr- I'm having trouble at the moment thinking my way through this in a in a positive way. Yeah, I I, I get that very strong impression. Um, I will be sitting down over the next week and writing um, a number of outlooks for the world economy, for the Irish economy, for markets in 2022. And as I said to you earlier today, I um, this time last year, I was saying that this thing is fraught with uncertainty, that uh, the path of the virus will have a huge impact on the path of economies and markets. And um, I would have to say I'm in exactly the same position today. Um, I can understand the economic fundamentals out there in terms of real activity levels, in terms of what's happening on the inflation front, um, in terms of the political risks around the world and the political issues uh, that have the potential to shape uh, global economic events in 2022. But uh, I have absolutely no idea how Omricon or anything that follows will impact on all of that. There, people are sort of saying that there is now no appetite for further lockdowns, further significant restrictions. And that is certainly the case in the UK where you have the Tories, particularly a lot of them voting against uh, what we would regard in this country as extremely mild restrictions being put in place. Uh, but uh, so if if there is a political refusal to accept further restrictions, you know, God only knows what that sort of situation, uh, what situation that will result in. Uh, it's pretty confusing stuff, I have to say. And uh, we go back to where we started today. I think for central bankers, starting to increase interest rates in this sort of environment does not make sense to me. Um, I think they have tr- they have to try and give as much fuel into the system as they possibly can during a period of such intense uncertainty, because um, I think premature monetary policy interventions at this stage could really push fragile consumer yeah, business. I think that's over probably the, the best place to end this this somewhat pessimistic podcast, Jim, which is just a remark that the system does seem particularly fragile from a medical point of view and from an economic point of view. It could come out well, and we obviously all hope that it does, but um, I do think that you're right. The policy needs to take into account these fragilities, these uncertainties, and not add to the problem. Um, they they don't need to become part of the problem, and they need, I think, to to be um, off the stage rather than centre stage, and they need to um, do whatever they can to help us through this this incredibly difficult period. Okay, Jim, thanks a lot. Um, Absolutely, we'll have, we'll have a more cheerful podcast next time. Well, let's hope so. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. 
Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.